All right, we're rolling. <laughs> so, um, welcome to the final TLS in the series. As I was saying to Rob just now, it's, uh, it's no coincidence that I left this subject to last, because <laughs> it is one of the most vexed and vexing of, uh, of questions. Um, so, you know, this will be, as always in TLS, this is how does our hermeneutics affect our beliefs on this area and, and how does our sort of what I consider to be a more mature and, and um, sensible and uh, good hermeneutic, how does that, does that change anything, you know, what happens? And ov obviously on some subjects we've, we've, we've sort of changed the view perhaps or we've looked at a slightly different view compared to the traditional evangelical type view. On other subjects we've kind of gone, well actually, that's right with with you know with these modifications or these provisos so we're basically doing the same sort of thing today um, I don't think we'll come to a conclusion that will satisfy everybody and I'm not trying to say this is the final word on it either I've put a couple of um, a couple of uh, disclaimers it's more of a personal set of notes really than than before so I've talked about myself a bit here uh, as in I am white male and heterosexual and therefore Arguably, you know, I haven't had the, the sharp end of this personally, you know, so I haven't experienced the rejection, the hurt and the misunderstanding that other people have. Some people might think, well, that, you know, why are you qualified to talk about it then? Well, you know, you could also argue that I haven't got a massive axe to grind, but, but as a Bible teacher, if, if I didn't tackle this, then I'd be neglecting an important subject. So I've, I've got to do what I can really and, and a lot of people for this subject it's like the elephant in the room you know it's the the one that a lot of people a lot of evangelicals particularly don't talk about they just go quiet on it um, for fear of controversy or being attacked or um, you know stalked on social media as Samantha was just saying thankfully I'm not on Facebook or anything like that <laughs> so, um, but and it does raise big questions you know but we have to tackle them and if if we all just go quiet then the argument will go one way but not necessarily for the right reasons so we, we have to kind of we have to you know do it with fairness grace compassion and i am very conscious that there may well be people listening to the podcast um i mean there, there may be people in this room that are touched by the issue in some way i, I have a couple of people in my extended family who are gay um, so, and I'm aware that for, for those people, this stuff really matters. It's not just interesting theological theory. Um, you know, it's, it's more than that. You know, some who experience same-sex attraction, others because if you, if you change on this issue, then the whole biblical worldview that they've been taught and grown up with and have confidence in seems under threat. So I've got a little quote here just to sort of start to spice things up a little bit from Mark Bonington who's written a uh, sort of co-written a little book on the subject. He says the crisis over homosexuality in the church is a test case over the Bible itself and how we can make it speak in a modern world that is often hostile to its most explicit statements on a subject, whichever subject. So it's like if, if you... Hiya. So if on the one hand if you say um, really hard line, the Bible says this, therefore, you know, and you come down on it like a ton of bricks, that harms your evan evangelism, actually. Yes. It, it stops you from reaching out and being as inclusive as God is, you know. Um, but on the other hand, if you just say, well, I know the Bible says this and this, but actually we, we don't really bother about that bit, that raises pastoral problems and and also credibility issues with okay what do you believe then you know what what can you take so it's, it's like not an easy thing as we know <coughs> so why the controversy then um, so as I said here for thousands of years the united testimony of the Christian and Jewish interpreters of scripture pretty much without exception was that homosexual practice was against God's design and not good for humanity and I'll always distinguish between uh, a same-sex attraction or a homosexual inclination and the practice and I think one of the changes that has happened in the Bible translations and in people's preaching and attitudes over the years is we've kind of done a better distinction there rather than just condemning people because of their yeah. their inclination you know which, which is is not a wrong thing so so the last few decades obviously there's been massive ch uh, change in society 
at least in the West. You know, I have some, you know, friends in Africa who say that you know, homosexuality is a Western disease. <laughs> I don't agree with them. But, you know, it's the West where there's been a lot of change. And some in the church have also changed their view. And it used to be that it was just more of the liberal theologians uh, that, that had a more liberal, progressive, affirming view, whichever you want to, um, however you want to describe it. Um, but recently, uh, several prominent evangelical leaders, so you think of um, people like Steve Chalk, uh, Rob Bell, you know, people like that, you know, they've, they've actually sort of broken ranks, as it were, um, and, and moved in that direction. So that's produced a lot of dispute and debate. Uh, how do you interpret the Bible passages that are relevant? And we'll look at those in a moment. Um, how, what does that mean for the rest of our theology, for our faith, our evangelism, you know, pastoral issues? Now, hopefully, um, if we think back to the very, very beginning of TLS, when I said, look, we can tackle these issues without losing our, our trust in God and our faith and our, you know, our belief in Jesus. It's not, you know, the transforming power of his gospel is not in question, you know, and the historicity of the Christian faith is not in question. Um, we can do that without, you know, we, so we can look at these issues and look at both sides without endangering that. Um, but there is a genuine question to face, you know, and some people are worried about it. On the one hand, you know, people <coughs> say, well, would we just be caving into the pressure of the world? Would we be... Uh, compromising so much on the Bible that loads of other things fall away as well? Or is actually what's happening, is God using culture change to prompt the church to do something different, you know, and to think differently? And uh, so the stakes seem high for people. So I mentioned um, before we started how there's, there's been a culture war going on um, with real casualties, you know, there's been a real struggle between two viewpoints, and both sides have adopted quite harsh tactics. You know, the um, elements in the the gay community, probably particularly in the states, um, really saw it as a war, uh, and they really wanted to punish those who disagreed, uh, and they saw it as a propaganda war, and so on. But then, you know, elements of the church, you know, the the uh, more conservative elements in particular have been reacting against that, um, preaching a lot of hate, you know, it's, it's not right. So on one side you've got the cry, stop the injustice, and the cry on the other hand sometimes has been, stop the immorality, you know, and the result has been gay people, people with the same-sex uh, orientation, have often been ostracised, rejected, denounced, people treat them as if they're subhuman um, or as if their particular brand of sin is far worse than anybody else's you know and it, it's that is is just not acceptable but on the other hand if you dare to speak something different as a as a perhaps a traditionally minded Christian um, it's easy to get labeled bigot ignorant you don't really care you're not compassionate you're backward you're, you're a bit you know stupid so it's caused a lot of hurt and confusion. And what happens is, people who experience same-sex attraction, who are Christians and they're in the church, they keep it secret. Because, you know, their fear of, the fear of rejection, the fear of what it's going to mean for them. Um, and some who hold on to the, the historic view, including some of those who do experience same-sex attraction, um, they keep quiet for the fear of the consequences of speaking out. Mm -hmm. um, now, in all of this, we would do rather well to imitate Jesus, <laughs> who spent time with all sorts of socially awkward people, you know, and he spent time with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those who were viewed in society as the sinners, you know, the ones that were worse than everybody else. Um, he rubbed shoulders with them, he ate with them, he allowed them to touch him, he, you know, he... Uh, and at the same time he ate with Pharisees you know when the Pharisees came against the truth and came against God's nature he, he dealt fairly harshly with them but he he accepted them as well so okay so let's do some basic assumptions and then we'll have a bit of a discussion break into the lime and sultana scones I understand <laughs> uh, big ones apparently um, 
You see what you miss if you only listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, and then we'll, we'll get on to it. It's going to be a relatively short break because I have got quite a bit of material in part two because it, it needs a fairly thorough treatment and I need to explain what I mean quite carefully. So I, I can't, we can't afford to have a massively long discussion, unfortunately, but we will have a discussion. So basic assumptions. We haven't got time to discuss human sexuality in general, but I'm pretty convinced, um, fully persuaded, that we, on good biblical, practical and sociological grounds, that A, God created sex as a good thing, and B, the right place for it is in a, a, a covenant, a marriage covenant, a faithful, monogamous, lifelong covenant. And so I think we can support that biblically, we can support that sociologically, practically, you know, just wisdom. Um, so we're not going to question that. So the, the, the basic question that we're facing today then is whether a marriage like that could be between two people of the same sex or whether marriage is always between a man and a woman. I'm also going to make the assumption, and this is a good one, that in the vast majority of cases someone's sexual orientation is not simply a personal lifestyle choice. People, you know, Christians used to sometimes assume or say that it was all to do with their personal choice or it was, you know, it was maybe just something, an event that had happened to them uh, that tipped, you know, that tipped them that way. Um, for a lot of people, for most people, it's just involuntary, you know. And there could be uh, elements of nature and nurture. You know, nobody really knows actually where it comes from. Um, nobody's ever found a gay gene, but genetics can obviously lend a predisposition in all sorts of different directions, in all sorts of ways. There could be uh, environmental factors, but nobody really knows. So it just tends to be something that people gradually become aware of when they reach puberty. They're just attracted to their own, to certain people of their own sex, not the opposite sex. Um, so as I said before, we've got to distinguish orientation from practice and intent. So it's like temptation, you know, temptation isn't sinful. It's just a fact of life. So I'm going to use the expression same-sex attracted rather than gay, uh, mostly, because not all Christians who experience same-sex attraction identify themselves as gay. And that's because the word gay comes with all sorts of assumptions that people will then place on you about your preferences, about, um, about lifestyle and everything else. So sometimes they just say, look, I don't want to. Some people do, some people don't. Um, so I'm going to use that the term same-sex attracted. So um, we'll have a bit of a break, break into the scones. What I want us to talk about is not so much the issues themselves, but what is the concern that you have? You know, what is uppermost in your mind in this subject? Are you most concerned, for example, about being faithful to Scripture? Or is the thing that's uppermost in your mind compassion towards people who are affected by this or is it about justice is it about upholding god's truth is it about something to do with society or family or whatever else so what it'd be interesting to know what people's motivating factor is um so let's let's have a think about that and uh, have a scone and then we'll get started in you know not five or ten minutes Okay, so um, various different uh, motivations there. Um, very often, actually, when somebody encounters somebody that has been affected by these issues in a negative way, it really prompts them to, to think, to maybe even change their view, or at least change their approach. And so one of the motivations is compassion. It, it is, it's kind of what would Jesus do moment, you know. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have to be, as I said, uh, as I was saying in the break, you know, we, we need to be faithful to our understanding of the Bible. You know, if as evangelicals, some people call themselves post-evangelicals these days or re-evangelicals, um, we haven't in TLS obviously always taken a traditional evangelical view. But if, if as loosely uh, evangelicals we've have a view of the Bible which is this is the book God has given us in the form that we've got it um, it's that it's authoritative in some way and there's lots of different ways of, of understanding that but if we believe it's authoritative how do we interpret it in the light of all these things so 
throughout TLS we've been looking at hermeneutical principles um, that I think are more a more mature a more um, sort of sensible and better uh, than perhaps just the proof texts that we were happy with you know 20 years ago um, but where does that lead us so up front I'm going to say that the the hermeneutical principles that we've been exploring to my mind still back up the historic view of same-sex relationships in terms of specifically same-sex marriage but I also want us to really consider strongly what is our pastoral response to this and how do we need to treat people you know I'm not saying this is the final word on the subject but I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I wasn't being faithful to the principles that I've been teaching all this time so you know I've read different viewpoints etc etc so I am going to come down more on the historic side but I'm also going to challenge us in terms of our practice you know in, in terms of what we do when we encounter people and how we reach out to people like that and, I, and I'm not saying this is the final word so let's have a look at the the relevant scriptures so there's a couple of sheets floating around that you can look at you can pass them around or you can uh, I think there's, there should be sort of one loosely there and there with the scriptures on there's actually only about five scriptures in the Bible on it which suggests it's not as hot a topic for God as it is for <laughs> for us today um, <laughs> So let's just go through them. So we've got the, the references are in your notes. So the Leviticus 18, verses 20, uh, sorry, verse 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Now, obviously, that's rather severe and bloodthirsty, but then quite a lot of that era... Uh, quite a lot of that law was. Um, yeah. Thankfully, when it comes to, to Jesus, whilst he probably upholds uh, things like adultery, you know, the woman caught in adultery, if you think about that one, they said, right, we've got to stone this woman, according to the law, yeah. and Jesus put a stop to that. Yeah. He didn't deny that she'd done something wrong, or that, that it wasn't good what she'd done, and he told her, go and, you know, don't do that again, effectively, you know, go and stop sinning but he stopped the penalty so thankfully the penalty is not there and regardless of what you think about the uh, the law as, as it stands the penalty isn't there so romans 1 this is one of the biggies verses 24 to 27 uh paul's been talking about idolatry and people um, moving away from the worship of god and it says therefore god gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 10 do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God now as we know the kingdom of God is not heaven this is about you know that God's new age so this is like how do you inherit the blessings of the kingdom not will you be allowed through the pearly gates um, but anyway that's an aside do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. And I think that's important to remember. Uh, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And finally, 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 to 11. And I will be going over some of the, the words that are used and, and so on in it. Uh, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, in the olden days, 
evangelicals would have been perfectly happy with that list of proof texts and would, that, that would have ended all debate. Um, but, as we've been learning, in the last 20 to 30 years evangelicals have kind of discovered or really they've, they've come across what other people have been doing for a long time, which is the science's art of hermeneutics. <coughs> which means we need to go beyond the proof text to work out what God's really saying. Because it's silly just to read the Bible with our 21st century glasses on and not take any account of what they actually meant when they were saying it. You know, um, Yes, the Bible is a word to all ages, but it came through a culture, so we have to understand what it was they were actually trying to get across. What's the author's intention? What did the original hearers understand? What did they, what did they take from it? What was the cultural setting? Um, it does make a difference, you know, what, what, what the culture was, because they're trying to address issues in their culture. Yeah. So if we don't have that same issue, um, it might not apply in the same way. So we have to take that into account. And this is what we've been doing all the way through. Uh, we've got to look at the original meaning of words, and especially the overall message of Scripture with the unfolding story of God's love for humanity. And that's, that's the key, really, to me. <coughs> what's the Bible saying overall? Obviously, it's always an incomplete and an ongoing process. Um, and I've been thinking about this issue for you know, a good number of years. Um, and obviously, the thinking isn't going to stop now. Um, I agree with, with what's been said already about we've just got to be a lot more relaxed and a lot more inclusive and a lot more loving and a lot more compassionate to our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. You know, and to people that are not, you know, don't know yet that there are brothers and sisters because <laughs> they're out there. But they're, you know, but at this stage, hand on heart, I cannot say if we apply the biblical principles that I've been sort of exploring with us all over the last year and a bit. I can't say that that leads me to an affirming position of same-sex marriage, and I'll explain why. But I'm not saying that's always going to be the case. I'm not saying that I'm never going to change or, you know, whatever. Um, we, but we need to respond in a better way than we have been as well. So it's going to involve some radical mess, all of this. <laughs> and, that, you know, we're going to come across situations and we're going to think, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know how to approach this. Um, so let's look at some of the arguments that are used to support same-sex couple relationships and I'm thinking specifically because obviously I have a same-sex relationship with Rue it's not a sexual one it's a friendship one you know so you have to say what you mean so what I'm talking about is could two blokes or two women have a marriage covenant which involves sexual activity and that's really the specific that I'm talking about um, so there's nothing wrong with really really close same-sex friendships um, but people are sort of wanting to go beyond that so let's look at some of these arguments so Chris first of all first argument Christians are not subject to Old Testament laws now I actually agree with that uh, we're not under law but under grace Romans six fourteen. but some of that <coughs> ancient law code that was given to that ancient people of Israel some of it actually carries through different cultures how do we know which bits to carry through? Now, some people have had a go at this, and one of the popular ways to do it, uh, which actually I don't think really holds a lot of water, but the, the people split up the law into the civil law, <coughs> the rules for that society in that day, you know, put a parapet around the roof of your houses and things like that, which don't really apply to us now. The ceremonial law, which is all about the sacrifices and the, temp and the tabernacle and so on, and and that's all been fulfilled in Jesus. And the moral law, which people treat as true at all times and in all places. However, the problem is it's really, really hard to split up the law like that. You know, you, you know which bit goes where, you know, and it's not really divided up like that. So I think a, a better way is to just is to allow the Bible to speak to the Bible. So you allow Jesus to pull out sections of the law and reaffirm them. And you allow Paul to kind of pull out sections of Genesis or whatever and, and, and reaffirm this is this is how this applies now and if if it gets reaffirmed in the New Testament then obviously it's survived through quite a lot of culture change already and there's a good chance it's gonna gonna continue so 
Paul and Jesus obviously both drew on Old Testament law. Whenever the New Testament writers used the term sexual immorality, um, porneo, I think is the, uh, the word, or some pronunciation like that, they would have had in mind the list of sexual sins in Leviticus. That's what they would have been thinking of. Um, and certainly for the church, the early church, the, the two big things were idol worship and sexual morality. Those were the two biggies uh, when you think about the letters that were written to them and so on. And sex outside marriage generally, where marriage was always seen as male and female, they were, they were consistently warned against. Um, now that was really difficult in, in the pagan world because in Corinth, for example, uh, you can see it in the letter. You know, they were saying to Paul things like food for the stomach and the stomach for food. You know, God will destroy both. doesn't matter what you do with your body. And what they meant was, if I go and sleep with a prostitute at the temple, who cares? doesn't matter. Body's going to disappear. And they had this kind of view that what you did with your body didn't matter. Um, so that even in the church, people didn't see sexual immorality as immorality. You know, so, so they had to hit it time and again. It was quite difficult. Uh, to get across this, uh, going against the the culture, um, but there, but the sign of a transformed life in Christ was that you didn't worship idols and you didn't sleep around. Um, so portions of the Old Testament law can be seen to apply if they are reaffirmed by by the New Testament. Is what I'm saying. Anyway, that's that's one. <clears throat> So, uh, one argument is that Paul, in his writing that we read out, the scriptures we read out, he was thinking of coercive sex. In other words, he wasn't thinking of mutual um, homosexual activity, you know, but it, it was abusive and controlling. Um, the snag with, with making that argument is that in the 1 Corinthians passage, which we'll look at in a bit more detail later, both parties in the union are warned um, and it seems in the Romans passage that both sides are equally desirous. There's no real hint of coercion in those writings. And in the Leviticus passage, of course, okay, it's Old Testament law, but both parties were held guilty. So it wasn't the case of, uh, whereas if it was coercion, for example, in the, in, the, in the case of rape, only the man was to be put to death, Deuteronomy 22, 25. But, um, the party that was being coerced wasn't. Um, whereas here, it, it looks like both sides are being censured. So there, there isn't a strong argument for saying it's only about coercive sex. So another big argument that people use is, was it just in the Romans passage, when it says contrary to nature, they did things contrary to nature, was that just people who by nature were heterosexual, going against their nature uh, and behaving in with a homosexual way? Um, so that's, that's been thought about quite a lot and the idea is that Paul wouldn't have had a problem with an authentic, mutual, loving, homosexual relationship the trouble is if Paul had meant that he could have just said it but he doesn't actually say it anywhere okay, that's arguing from silence um, but the, the thing is in Romans 1 and in fact throughout the book of Romans Paul is addressing a specific issue. The book of Romans was written to the new churches in Rome where Paul hadn't actually yet been. But there were these probably little house churches that were springing up. He was appealing for unity amongst them. But he was also appealing to the mainly Gentile uh, believers. There were Jews and Gentiles, but he was appealing to them not to lose sight of the Jewish origins of their faith because if they lost sight of the concept of Messiah and the concept of Abraham's blessing reaching out to the rest of the world, they'd lose track of what the gospel actually was. It would just become a, an individualistic, um, getting saved for eternity type gospel, which funnily enough is what we have a lot in the West <laughs> at the moment. So we still need the message of Romans. So Paul's writing to the Romans to say, you need to make sure you're rooted in your Jewish, uh, in the Jewish scriptures, but at the same time, you're one body, so don't put up barriers. Um, 
so anyway so Paul is making this and we'll talk a bit more about that later but Paul isn't addressing in this bit where he's talking about um, people abandoning their um, their the, the, the way of nature and going to these unnatural uh, relationships it's all part of a very careful but fairly sweeping reflection on Genesis 1 to 3 so the argument goes something like this male and female were created to worship God and reflect God's image part of which of course is to multiply but contrary to God's intention for all that for nature they turned in on themselves and started worshipping idols worshipping creatures worshipping the sun and moon they started worshipping one another and so Paul isn't actually addressing specific groupings of homosexual people in this passage he's only using that incidentally he's basically using homosexual activity as a working example of a bigger thing that he's talking about so he's saying that people lost sight of God um, and therefore went into all sorts of stuff they shouldn't have got into. So he's not saying that same-sex attracted people are worse idolaters than anyone else, you know. Um, but he's saying that in a world where the image of God has been so distorted and obscured and in a world where people have failed in their mandate to worship and image God, this is the sort of thing that's going to happen the fall has produced relationships that can't by nature reflect God's purpose you know uh, in terms of multiplication in terms of the male plus female design so it's interesting that later in the letter you've got Abraham and Sarah who are barren they're credited as righteous and they become fruitful um, so as I say this is not singling out specific groups of heterosexual people because they've done something they shouldn't it's more saying that in a world that has fallen and lost sight of the purpose of God, these kind of relationships are one of the side effects. That, that's the argument that Paul is making. Now, the use of the word nature, in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 14 on head covering, which I have covered in the past, um, <coughs> nature can be taken to mean culture. So, you know, Paul says, doesn't the very nature of things tell you that men shouldn't have long hair? And he's talking about the culture around them. So some people have said, well, that, that means you, this means culture. You know, this is contrary to nature, means it's contrary to the culture. Um, but Paul, if you understand Paul's narrative and what he's trying to do, as I've just been saying, that kind of works against that. So... Surely it was all about specific Roman and Greek practices. Now it was, um, weirdly, um, perhaps shocking even to our 21st century ears, it was quite common in the Greco-Roman world for attractive young men to sell themselves to older men as a sort of lifelong or a long-term male mistress. Uh, so you had these rich older men who probably also had wives, because you needed to be an upstanding citizen and produce an heir and whatever. They may have even had female mistresses as well as these, these young men. Um, but this was a very, very common practice. And some have suggested that it was specifically that that Paul was addressing in his writings. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, he's talking about men who have sex with men, as the, as the NIV puts it now. Um, and they're saying, well, that, that was what it was. The snag with that is that there was a very well-known and perfectly good word Paul could have used for that specific practice, but he doesn't use it. He uses two words which are uh, much more general. Um, and so in the older translation of the, N in the older NIV, it, it varies across different translations, but in the older NIV it says male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. It used to say homosexuals, which I think was wrong, because it captures everybody, even with just, just with an inclination, you know, that is wrong. But the, the two words, one of them is, is um, the second word is arsenokoitai, which actually is literally uh, someone who beds a man, effectively. So it, but it, it became a rather colourful and rude word, actually. When Paul used it, he was using quite a strong word. Basically, somebody who has sex with a man um, but it, it's not clear sort of which partner it would be so but it's likely that it would be the sort of active partner but he couples it with another word malachi the first word 
which has been translated as um, as various things, but it actually literally just means soft. But it became a kind of derogatory way of referring to an effeminate man. And so he couples these two together, and obviously they're in a big long list of, of things which are heavily weighted towards sexuality and sexual sins and so on. Um, so he couples them together. So the likelihood is most Bible scholars at this time, not all, but most, reckon that it, Paul is meaning the passive and the active members or partners in a same-sex act, basically a male same-sex act. Um, so again, you've got, uh, you know, you, you haven't got this idea of prostitution in there necessarily because he hasn't used the word that would have said that straight up. And you haven't got the sense of coercion because both partners are are equally targeted in this. So next one, um, Paul just didn't know about faithful lifelong gay relationships. Now a lot of people assume that the lifestyle options available in the New Testament days didn't include the idea of a faithful lifelong marriage covenant and therefore that the Bible's teaching is culturally conditioned and that's a valid cultural conditioning like that is a valid argument. So where you've got, if the Bible's being written in a culture where there's basically only one option, then there's a fair chance that you need to take that into account when we apply it today. So for example, slavery was absolutely endemic. Um, it, society wouldn't work without it. Everybody, you know, not everybody had slaves, but a lot of people were slaves and it was just everywhere. And so, um, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time trying to work against that. It just it just tells people how to live within that. And so some people have said, oh, well, you know, nobody today really. Uh, um, but in the olden days, before people like William Wilberforce, people just said, well, it's in the Bible. It's, it's agreed. It's fine. But it's culturally conditioned because there was only one option. Um, and in actual fact, there is a trajectory in the Bible towards abolition of slavery because Paul says things like don't become slaves of anyone and if you can get your freedom do so and you've got the example of Onesimus and Philemon and he's trying to put them on an equal footing and, and so on and reconcile them and so on. So that's an area where cultural relativity as it's called is relevant. Same with the position of women in the household. Um, the Bible assumes that when a man and a woman are in a household together that the man will be in charge and will be the authority in that, in that home. There were women who had their own households. They were, you know, in the Bible, there are successful businesswomen who obviously run their own households and actually do a lot and have got quite a prominent position. But where there was a man and a woman in a home, it was assumed that the order of society was that the man would be in charge. And so the Bible teaches us how to live in that <coughs> scenario. But that was pretty much the only option that was so in other words it's we take that into account when we do teaching on marriage today um, and again there's a trajectory in the bible towards much much greater equality and there are scriptures that work both ways and we we interpret it like that however in the case of homosexual relationships there was a lot more than one option um, paul would have been a very aware of the different possibilities. Um, I've got a little quote from one of my all-time favourite authors and thinkers, N.T. Wright, um, who's cropped up quite a lot in these sessions. He says, there's a popular belief just now that the ancients didn't know about lifelong same-sex relationships, but this is easily refuted by the evidence, both literary and archaeological. Um, and he's a bear of very big brain, so I'm not going to argue with that. So we can't use the same arguments that people use for abolition of slavery and sort of equality of women. We can't use the same arguments in the case of uh, same-sex marriage um, because the whole cultural relativity thing has just not been established. You know, it's there were all these different options available. And unlike in the case of slavery and in the case of women, where there are scriptures that point in two directions, with homosexuality, albeit there aren't that many scriptures, they all point in one direction. So there isn't this trajectory set up towards 
the, you know, these, you know, this gay marriage, for example, to, to coin the phrase, may be okay. Um, there isn't a trajectory towards acceptance. There's a trajectory in the Bible in sexuality generally from people having multiple wives, people sleeping with all sorts of people, to faithful, monogamous, lifelong marriage. That is a trajectory that you can pick up in the Bible. But in terms of, of homosexuality, as I see it at the moment, and I always put that caveat on, with the, hom with the um, hermeneutical principles that, that I'm working to, this is the conclusion I'm coming to. So I'm not saying this is the final word, but th this is where I am at the moment. Okay, so another, another argument people use, isn't this just a disputable matter not to be argued over? Now this is from what Paul calls disputable matters. Um, you know how if your weak brother doesn't want to eat meat, you don't go and, and eat meat in front of him. You know, you, you kind of refrain so that you won't cause someone to stumble. And it's called adiaphora. Um, and people say, well, this issue is a disputable matter and we shouldn't make a fuss about it. So, and this comes from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, where he's talking about meat sacrifice to idols, particularly, and in Romans 14, where he's again he's talking about food and he's talking about one day being more special than another, and so on. And people say, well, look, Paul was. Um, was interested in tolerance. Now the slight problem I have with that argument is that something doesn't become a disputable matter just because a lot of people are disputing it. <laughs> um, something is only a disputable matter in biblical terms if the Bible says that's what it is. Um, then the other thing is Romans 14, as I said before the book of Romans is all about Jew and Gentile, and that was the big thing for Paul. That was the one he majored on. You know, he said there's neither slave nor free, um, there's neither male nor female, and there's neither Jew nor Greek, or Jew nor Gentile. And there were the three big areas of division that Paul identified, and the one he really went after in his lifetime was Jew versus Gentile, because he knew it had a massive effect on our understanding of the gospel. Um, and that we should be, and, our, and the evidence that we were part of a new creation was that we were united and we loved one another. So he really went after it. So in that was the whole book of Romans is is all around that issue. So in Romans 14, he's actually discussing things. So it, it becomes clearer later in the letter, but he's actually discussing things quite sensitively that are to do with things that can divide Jew from Gentile believers. So the key Jewish markers were the food laws and the Sabbath um, and circumcision. They were the three things that the Jews held on to to say these are our, this is what marks us out as Jewish. And Paul obviously hit circumcision very hard and sort of argued that you don't need to get circumcised and so on. Um, but in that Roman uh, situation, because all the meat around, most of it had been sacrificed to an idol or offered to an idol at some point and then it was sold in the market, um, some people had a problem with that and the ones that would have been likely to have had most of the problem would have been the Jewish ones with scruples about uh, what they could and couldn't buy. The cheap plentiful meat may well have been pork which they couldn't eat either um, and so they, they, they were more likely to consider food unclean whereas the Gentiles may have been finding it easier not to worry. I mean, they, they were going to idol feasts and sleeping with the prostitutes, you know, I mean, it's, they didn't have a problem. So they probably didn't have a, an issue with eating meat from the market. So, and in a similar way, the Jews still quite often uh, observed the Sabbath, whereas the Gentiles wouldn't have. So when Paul's talking about eating meat or being a vegetarian, and when he's talking about having one day more sacred than another and not, he's gently trying to say, don't set up things that are going to be an ethnic divider in your community. Um, so he didn't see these practices as harmful. They were just optional. It was about your conscience. Um, but on other subjects, like sexual ethics, Paul is pretty dogmatic. He doesn't allow any latitude. So he urges tolerance on issues which are going to divide the church. You know, issues which are going to produce ethnic divisions and deny that we're one body together. 
but he absolutely doesn't go for tolerance he goes pretty intolerant on things that divide what he sees as renewed image-bearing humanity from the opposite of that um, so for Paul seems to me that homosexual acts were not a disputable matter of course there was always the possibility of, of anyone uh, engaging in them to be fully integrated into God's people and lots of people in Corinth had been you know 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 so to my mind it isn't a disputable matter in the in the biblical sense it certainly is disputed uh, but it's not this kind of adiaphora that, uh, that people say it is. So the biggest thing, I think, is the big picture. How does it fit into Scripture as a whole? And I'm going to present a view. Um, you know, you, it's a view. Whether you agree with it, um, you know, this is the way I think Scripture presents um, the story, if you like. So... The Bible is the big story of how God is achieving his original intention. So it starts off in the Garden of Eden. Humanity is there to present God, to represent and to reflect God, especially in their relationships. And we're really big on, on relationships, you know, the, the whole concept of the Trinity and the community of God. And Genesis, the book of Genesis sets out lots of themes, including uh, how a union uh, brings out uh, you know, it's a creative difference bringing out some fruitfulness or other. So you've got these pairs are set up in the early chapters of Genesis. You've got heaven and earth, you've got day and night, you've got sea and land, and you've got male and female, and they're kind of set up as complementary pairs that are existing together in creative tension. So God says, um, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Genesis 2 verse 18. Now the word suitable that's used there in Hebrew means uh, similar but different. That's what it implies. So if all that Adam actually needed was somebody exactly like him, you know, if it, if it was a human being that he needed of either sex, then the Bible would have said, it would have just used the word someone like him. But it doesn't say, I will make a helper like him. It says, I will make someone suitable for, and again, there's this concept of similar but different. And as the Bible story progresses, of course, God's relationship with his people, both the people of Israel and then later on the church, is repeatedly, time after time in the prophets, uh, <coughs> referred to as a marriage. And their unfaithfulness is like adultery. And of course that carries through into the New Testament where you've got Jesus and the church, you've got the bridegroom and the bride, and the consummation of that is the return of Christ at the end of the age. And so marriage, the New Testament sees marriage as a foreshadowing and a visual aid to explain that relationship. And, the, and here's the argument that the birth of children or the potential for children highlights the fruitfulness of that complementary union. So, this is, this is the argument, don't stone me. Same-sex relationships can't express that union of otherness. And it's really a, this union of otherness, it's like an extension of the mystery of the incarnation. It's like God and man, it's like creator and created, these different things being uni united together. So, um, the marriage of a man and a woman is these two complementary, similar, compatible, but different things being joined together. Um, and in the book of Revelation, the symbol of the new creation, this uniting of heaven and earth, is a marriage. So marriage is not just a social or a sexual arrangement, but it's a prophetic act that requires a man and a woman in covenant together. And that's why the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Um, so you could say well okay that's all very well but what about um, the overriding principle of love that supersedes law and I've, I've read books that, that go down this avenue which is that there's only one law that matters in scripture and that is the royal law to love one another you know in the book of James um, love is the fulfilment of the law therefore if people love one another and they're not doing any harm, 
why on earth shouldn't they be allowed to marry anyone they, they wish? And often that's used as a sort of clinching argument. The only snag is, if, if you do do that, and I never really like the slippery slope argument, but, but if you do do that, what is different between that and, say, an open marriage where the husband and wife are totally free t- and happy to share with other similarly minded individuals and just have, you know, they're not doing any harm, they're consenting adults, they love one another. Um, or, if you think you could sort of dispose of that with other scriptures, then what about marriages between same-sex siblings? I don't know if that came up in the legislation about gay marriage, it might have done, but could you get two brothers who say, I want to marry, marry my brother, or two sisters? There's no genetic reason why that, shouldn't be, why that should be a problem. Um, do we consider that acceptable? Or, how about this one? Marriages with more than two people. There are people arguing for three-person or more marriages because they say, well, we love one another. Why shouldn't we be allowed to, to kind of have a marriage which is three people? And why do we think that's not acceptable, if we think that's not acceptable? The only reason, to my mind, for thinking that's not acceptable is that that doesn't reflect the creator's intention. So if, you, if you're going to use that argument to, to push aside those rather more extreme examples, then doesn't that catch same-sex marriage generally because it doesn't capture or reflect the Creator's intention for the universe? And that creative tension, I I read something um, by a woman who had had a same-sex relationship for for a number of years um, and then subsequently had got married to a man and had kids. I don't, know, I don't know whether her orientation changed or what, I don't necessarily think it did, but, um, but she said that in her, with her girlfriend, she never really had to work on it as hard as she did when she was married to a man, because that difference, that tension of being, you know, the old thing about men are from Mars, women are from Venus, okay, it's, a, it's not a biblical book, okay, that, <laughs> but it's got some truth in it there wasn't that tension of having to work with somebody that was so different to them. And it, it, they just sort of backed each other up in their similarities. And so there is a creative tension of working out difference and producing something in the context of covenant. The, the, you know, the, the tension produces maturity. Samantha and I have had to mature big time, you know, particularly in the early days, but ever since really, because of that, that God uses it. So here we're really getting to the nub of the issue. It's all very well, you might say, that's all very well for you, Paul, pontificating about the big biblical themes, um, but what about the people themselves? Is it compassionate to, quote, refuse gay people sex? Now, I can't refuse anything, really, but, but you know, if, if what I'm saying is right, then I would have to say to somebody, this isn't really God's best. You know, I'm not going to come down like a ton of bricks, but... It, but is it is it compassionate to do that? Surely, it's unfair to deny a lifelong sexual relationship to a same-sex attracted person or couple. And it's fair to say, I think, that a lot of Christians that change their view on this do so not because they've suddenly got a revelation about hermeneutics or because they've got a new understanding of a Greek word. Mm-hmm. It's because they've come across somebody and they see the hurt and they yeah. see the injustice and they yeah. see the kind of, this is not right, you know. And that's not an easy thing to ignore. Um, what I think we need to do is, and I've really only summarised them because I was running out of time and I'm running out of space, but these are things that we really, really need to think about. And these are things that are valid for church generally, not just this issue. But firstly, we've got to get into our heads that celibacy is not an evil thing to be avoided at all costs. Um, Rather, in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 7 in particular, singleness and celibacy is celebrated as a gift. Paul said that he wished everyone could be like he was, i.e. unmarried, because it allowed him to serve God in a way that a married person can't because they've got all these, you've got to look after somebody else's wishes as well. Um, You think about all the amazing people who were unmarried. Uh, Paul himself, obviously, Jesus. Um, John Stott was unmarried and the amazing work that he did 
many famous missionaries and so on, that they, their lack of a marriage partner freed them and enabled them to go and do amazing things. Um, marriage does bring its problems. Um, it brings distractions and it brings pressures that if you're single you don't have. When I was reading for this I came across something, an idea that I thought, wow that's such a great idea. Um, I'd often read the stuff Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, um, I wish everyone could be as, as I am. Uh, one has this gift, another has that. And I've read that for years as being single is so difficult that you have to have a supernatural spiritual gift to be able to stand it. <laughs> and that's how many Christians view it. What I read that kind of turned on light bulbs was actually everybody who is single has the gift of singleness. If you're married, you have the gift of marriage. Everybody who's single has that gift, unless it's exchanged for a gift of marriage. And the gift is not kind of supernatural ability to withstand the incredible pressure, although there is pressure, and I'm not saying there's no pressure, but the gift is this ability to serve God yeah. like you can't do if you're married. You know, th there's probably more to it than that, but it's like everybody has this gift, and singleness is a gift. Um, I'm conscious that, the, you know, that for some people it's also a hurtful and difficult thing. So I'm, I'm not denying that, and I, you know, I'm, it is an issue. But it's something in the church that we've lost sight of, uh, that we think that celibacy or singleness is this great evil thing that must be avoided and marriage must be sought at all possible, you know. It isn't like that in the Bible. Secondly, whilst celibacy involves suffering, because you are denying the drives that you have, um, suffering is not something to be avoided at all costs. You know, we've, we've kind of made self-fulfillment the goal in the kingdom, <laughs> when it isn't actually. Suffering is what advances the kingdom. So just because something involves suffering doesn't make it wrong. And we need to remember that. Thirdly, and uh, I think Rena pointed this out recently on a Sunday morning, intimacy is not equivalent to sex. True intimacy is possible in non-sexual relationships. Modern society has reduced intimacy to purely being about the sexual act and totally undervalues the real genuine intimacy you can have in friendships together with more than one person. If we could get this right, it would really help with the terrible epidemic of porn addiction. Because you've got all these guys and, probably, and women going after intimacy in the wrong way. But if they could experience true intimacy in the context of a family in the context of a loving family where you can be intimate in a non-sexual way, that desire and drive and torment goes away. Uh, or at least, you know, it becomes a lot easier to deal with that. Okay, uh, so last page. I need to rattle on because we're going to be late downstairs. So the fourth one is, there's not going to be any marriage in the new age, it seems, from what Jesus said. So all relationships are going to experience the intimacy and joy that sex is only a foreshadowing of. So if, if someone is celibate during their lifetime, by choice or otherwise, they're not going to miss out <coughs> in the long term. Uh, because every relationship is going to be fantastic in the new age. Um, and so, okay, so why does God give us a sex drive then? The sex drive, even if it's never acted upon, it reminds us of the passion and the desire for closeness that exists between Christ and his people and obviously there's a consummation to come at the, in the age to come so the sex drive even if it's never used as it were it serves to remind us of this desire for closeness that God has with his people so there is a purpose for it so how do we respond to this um, we could talk about this last section ad infinitum unfortunately we don't have time one thing you know I want to hit a couple of things churches are often ready to welcome if an unmarried heterosexual couple walks in the door churches often now turn a blind eye to the fact that they're not married and they work with them they welcome them they disciple them and they trust that in time god will reveal his will to them and something will change but they don't bar them they don't just say get yourself married and don't come back until you do however when a same-sex couple comes historically people have tended to react differently and i don't think they should you know this We've got to be inclusive, we've got to be welcoming, we've got to trust that if a same-sex couple comes, 
that they can be welcomed, they can become part of the family. And we trust that in forging relationships, in discipleship uh, relationships and the process that God does in someone's heart, that there could be change. Now that change may well not include a change to somebody's sexual orientation. And as we said before, we can't pressurise people. There's been a huge amount of abuse on, on that whole thing about conversion therapies and so on. And it doesn't reflect the Christ who sat down and ate with outcasts and sinners, you know, so-called. So, next one. If, if a same-sex couple does come and they've got kids, should we attempt to break up the family and potentially deprive the children of security and stability and, and so on? Now, <laughs> these are real issues. Um, in New Testament times, this is, this is a thought, okay, this is an idea, and it's not fully developed, but, and, and so we, you know, we'd need to think about this. In many parts of the world today, as in New Testament times, men have more than one wife. Now in the Bible, when people came to Christ, the whole household came in, a guy potentially with several wives, they did not require the man to separate from all of those wives except one. And people like Bryn and others in Africa have come across this in the modern day. And there are guys who maybe have 40 wives or 15 wives. And they would be more than happy to have only one. To be honest, I don't blame them. <laughs> in trouble for that comment. But uh, <laughs> one's quite enough. But, um, but they'd be quite happy to. But then that means that those wives and kids are now destitute, yeah. potentially forced into prostitution. Um, that's not right. They've got to take their responsibility and support that family. And that was the case in the New Testament. What the New Testament did say was don't make an elder... A man with multiple wives, of a man with multiple wives, because the the thing that should be highlighted is in the leadership is the, the ideal that we want to portray. So I wonder, and it's an idea that I'm throwing out there. Maybe we could take a similar um, approach in the case of same-sex couples. So a couple that I haven't written down. Would I pray for a same-sex couple in a meeting? I think yes, in general terms, I would. Um, because they're people, they're human beings. Would I pray for a blessing of their union together? <sighs> Probably not. Um, I'd have to pray in, in, in more general terms than that. Um, would I conduct a wedding ceremony of a same-sex couple? No, not at this stage. I, I, wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel at liberty to because of the understanding I'm currently at with my hermeneutics and that may change in the future, it may not, and I'm not going to presuppose that anything that we discover in the future about the Bible, about archaeology, about anything of that, you know, any kind of new hermeneutics, I'm not going to presuppose where that goes. But where people choose to remain celibate, we need to support them in that. It's a harder decision than it's ever been for a same-sex attracted Christian to deny their sex drive and say, I'm going to remain celibate because I believe the Bible says that I shouldn't go down that route. In the old days, you know, even only a couple of decades ago, they would have been firmly supported by all their Christian brothers and sisters, and there would have been no question. These days, they can just go on Google, they can go on YouTube, they can buy a book that tells them, actually, it's all okay. So it's actually really, really hard for somebody that believes the more historic view it's actually really hard for them to stick to that and we need to support people that, that choose that and want to do that. And so church has to be a family, has to be a place where real intimacy can grow. If people are single for any reason, and I've been challenged again by this as I've been preparing, we need to include them in church life, into our family homes regularly, freely, and involve people so that we can be that intimate friendship group, that family that we're supposed to be. So uh, I'm going to finish because I've only got three minutes left, in fact less than that. Um, this is all my personal current thinking, another disclaimer. It may evolve with further reflection and discussion. We've got to stay humble, we've got to stay gracious and compassionate, and we've got to be able to hear people that think differently, and especially those who actually experience same-sex attraction and this is a live issue for them. One thing that does does guide me from time to time is that whilst emotion about all this and emotion about anything can be a useful spur and a prompt to look at an area again, it, 
it needs to be governed by the Word of God and our understanding on the Word of God. The Scripture should be the plumb line when it's correctly interpreted. But we do need to remain flexible. You know, new scholarship might come up, new revelation might present itself. We need to be willing to learn because God, as I've said all along through TLS, God is up, is unfolding life-giving truth from his word all the time. So this is the last TLS for now. Um, I'll take my tin helmet off in a bit, <laughs> but I hope that's been um, at least informative of the, the, where I consider the current state of things to be. Amen. <laughs>